Hello and thanks for streaming this episode from ACF Church. Our hope is that this word would encourage you to walk closer with God and with your local church. We hope you consider partnering in the work God's doing here by joining a life group, serving, and giving. If you'd like to give financially to the mission of ACF Church, you can do so safely on our website at acfak.org or by texting the amount to 907-341-4213. Now prepare your hearts to hear God's word. Help me polarize, help me polarize, help me down. Those stairs is where I'll be on all my problems. Help me polarize, help me polarize, help me down. I got reminded to, uh, to welcome everybody online this morning as well, and after three services of not being nervous, I realized my mom was watching now, so, so there's that. I'm just messing with you guys. Um, today is the, the question and response time that wraps up the Polarized series. Uh, your first question might be, who's this dude and why is he on stage this morning? Uh, my name is Chad. I'm on the lead team here at ACF, and Brian asked me uh, when he found out that they were going to be out of town this week. Uh, at, at our field forum for our, uh, for our denomination that uh, he asked me if I would come and do the, the question and response time. One of my favorite things about being an Alaskan is that everybody here, you have an immediate uh, entry into conversation with somebody just by asking them, how long have you been in Alaska? Like You can just kind of go to that right off the bat. And uh, so I figured I'd kind of start with that. Uh, my wife and I decided to uh, sell about 90% of what we owned, uh, pack everything else into a U-Haul trailer, uh, and you know, quit perfectly good jobs, all that kind of stuff, scare our parents, and, uh, and drive up here, spend about three and a half weeks camping and, and all that. Since then, uh, she taught two years in the bush and is now a teacher with ASD, and I uh, wholesale sporting good stuff. I sell uh, fish and tackle and, and hunting gear to stores across the state. Uh, we've been at ACF now for about six years. The first uh, Sunday that we were here, Pastor Josh was teaching, and he was wearing these uh, crazy uh, fake tattoo sleeves. And uh, we just were like, yeah, okay, so uh, these are our people. And so we've been here pretty much ever since then. Uh, we've been life group leaders for about three years now, and I've been on the board for two, uh, just making financial decisions and trying to pray over and lead the church in the right direction. Um, we also got really worried about the population drop in Alaska in the last few years, so we decided to start making new Alaskans. So I got a, a little a two-year-old downstairs and a little two-month-old back in the cry room this morning. Uh, but what you really need to know about me through this is that I am a questioner. I appreciated being asked to do this because I love to, to tear apart things. It's my passion to take preconceived notions and things that we just assume to be right and really deconstruct those and, and rebuild them from scratch. Ask the real hard questions of why we believe what we believe. 
and so it was no shock to me uh, a couple months ago when the, the staff here at the church and some of the leadership, we took um, a personality test, and my personality was labeled the investigator. I was like, okay, this makes perfect sense. So it's no big surprise. Uh, if you really want to make me mad, tell me uh, when I ask you why you do something the way it's done, say, well, because we've always done it that way. That's like cursing to me. I really can't stand that. So uh, that's, that's my heart. And so to be asked to look at your doubts and questions was, was really a privilege to me uh, because I share a lot of them. Like I have walked through a lot of these. And about 25 years of being you know, uh, an adult Christian and really having to deal with, with doubts and questions, God has shown me so much amazing stuff that I never would have thought would have been revealed to me. And, and has changed my mind on so many issues. There were definitely things when, uh, when Josh was talking about the Dunning-Kruger effect, the idea that the less you know, the more sure of it you are. I, I had examples that morning when he was talking about that. So I have certainly been there, and God has brought me through some really cool stuff to, to places I never would have thought I would have been. But I still have unanswered questions. And with that, I kind of want to take a, a minute just to plug life groups for a second. If you are not in a life group, um, I don't know of a better way for you to struggle with the things that we're talking about. Uh, there are life groups that just basically take Sunday mornings and let's just hang out and talk about it, stuff like that. But find a group that you can struggle through your doubts and questions with. It's, it's not a good idea to, to just struggle in a vacuum with this stuff. Uh, find people who, who are also asking the same questions, and, and maybe, you know, between you, you can start really diving into it and getting somewhere. With that, let's, let's pray and get into the questions. Jesus, thank you so much for this morning, God. I just ask that you would, uh, you would open up our hearts and our minds, that you would just help us to honestly search for you uh, as we look at how and why we doubt about stuff and Help us to be honest with ourselves. Help us to really come before you searching answers, not trying to get you to validate things that we hold important. Uh, God, that we would, we would really be looking to you as, as what you are, the creator of the universe and of all of this, uh, and that we would find you there. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So just a quick disclaimer. Uh, if you were one of the ones that asked the question and that made it up here, uh, please give me a little bit of grace. I had to kind of edit to so that it spoke naturally for me, but also um, you know, if, a, if a question was sent in a couple of times that were very similar, they get kind of combined. So uh, give me a little bit of grace if, if I didn't answer it quite how you were hoping it would get answered. I'm trying to faithfully get at the core of your question. And with that, let's, um, let's just get into this first question. We teach our kids to be careful with who they hang out with, but in this series, we're being encouraged to hang out with those Jesus would. How do we do both? Um, I think we've got to start with following Jesus through the Gospels with a critical eye. I like that the questioner asked, you know, the, the correct question, in my opinion, of how do we hang out with people like Jesus would. Uh, and I think we really do a pretty bad job at this. So let's look at uh, who and how he interacts with. Uh, let's start with just what Jesus prays over his own disciples, or not prays over, sorry, the, what he speaks to his disciples in Matthew ten sixteen, uh, He tells them, look, I'm sending you out like sheep among wolves. Therefore, be as shrewd as serpents and as gentle as doves. We don't often put shrewd and 
Christian together, Christ follower together. That is not usually an adjective I hear describing my Christian friends uh, in the world, but Jesus is clearly asking us to, to seriously think through, uh, you know, who and how we interact with people. Um, so as we look at Jesus modeling this, Jesus never went anywhere. He never ate with anybody. He didn't sit down next to a lady at a well that he didn't have a purpose for. He was intentional in everything that we read in the Gospels. It had a meaning and it had a reason he was doing it. And I know that in my own life, I don't apply that very often to friendships. I don't find myself being intentional with friendships. There are a lot of friends that I would consider good friends, but they're my friends because, you know, we we shared a love of Star Wars or I thought they said something funny or whatever. And there was no intentionality into why I, I became their friend. So as we look at Jesus modeling this, I think it's important to look at how he kind of stratifies his friendships. We start with just general follower, this giant bubble. There's a ton of people that are following Jesus around. You know, most of them are just there because they've heard this guy is an amazing speaker. They probably have heard that he's done miracles before. So they want to see him heal somebody. They want to, you know, there's probably a guy that wants him to turn water into wine, all that stuff. Uh, So you have these people that are interested in Jesus, but they don't really have a relationship with him. It's very much a one-way street. Uh, From there, we get to those that are close enough to host him for stuff. We see several times where Jesus is eating at someone's house, and we can imagine as he travels around the country, he's probably staying at people's houses all over the place. So you've got, you know, the family of Mary Magdalene, family of Lazarus. You get uh, some tax collectors that want to house him to, to meet their friends, and that, even that's for various motivations. And then you get the Pharisees, which this is even an adversarial thing. They're hosting him to prove him wrong. But Jesus is still interacting with these people. So they're not all necessarily friends, but there is definitely a level of communication and interaction there. From there, of course, we go to the 12. We all know about the 12 disciples. Uh, These are his buddies. These are the guys that are with him day in and day out. They're traveling with him. Uh, They're on the road with him. They joke with him. They eat with him. They see him, you know, uh, after he gets out of the shower and his hair's all messed up. It's, It's the dudes who really know him best. But it's important to know that, like, even inside of that, there's an inner circle, what we call the inner three of Peter, James, and John. And I think that's where it gets really important. He did have these best friends that he, he asked to go pray with him. Uh, you know, when, when things were really important and heavy, these were the guys that he leaned on and trusted most. And I think that when we really look hard at that, it's because they're the ones that shared his ministry and his goals most closely. So as you kind of go back out from Jesus on that, you see these three who are the basis of the, the church in Acts. They're the ones that are doing the heavy lifting. Then you've got the 12 who are also still very much involved. They, they very closely mirror Jesus' ministry in that. And then, you know, it goes out from there. I'm sure that, La- you know, Lazarus's family spent the rest of their life telling people about that event and stuff. Uh, so I, I don't know that we do that very well. I don't usually align myself with people who are going to help me with my goals in ministry. And, and I think I should. I think this is a good question to ask. Uh, kind of the flip side of that, though, after talking about how to to make sure that the people closest to you share your goals. We're not to take ourselves out of the world, though. In John 17, 15, Jesus prays a really interesting prayer over us. And he's asking the Father, he says, My prayer is not that you would take them out of the world, but that you would protect them from evil. So, 
especially as I thought about the, the kids part, I thought, how often do we use uh, Christianity as kind of an excuse to shield our children a little bit from society, and we want to differentiate them a little bit and pull them away? And I'm not sure that that's what we should be doing. I, after reading this, I kind of feel like maybe we should be praying like Jesus is praying, that they wouldn't be removed from these things, but they would be protected and have influence in the world and, and watch them change it. And I think we should be praying this over each other and, and over, over our kids all the time. Next question. I have been struggling with understanding that Jesus died for the sins of our generation so many years ago. How can we know this? How can we feel this? I really love the honesty of this question because I feel like this is a question, you know, if I ask you to raise your hands, which I'm not, most everybody in the room would say that they've had some variation of this question, just kind of like, man, it's been an awfully long time. Like, what's, what's God doing in all this? So I feel like this is great that this person is willing to actually ask it. Uh, I'm going to take a little bit of a philosophical approach in that when you look at God throughout the Bible, he's just not an impatient God. There's no one verse that says this or anything, but God waited a long time to build his story and the narrative he wanted to tell, starting with the fall and ending in the, in the revelation of Jesus. So just in that first segment, he took thousands of years to put into place everything that he wanted so it would be perfect for when Jesus came. You have the whole building of the nation of Israel and all the trouble that they go through time and time again, going back and forth. And I feel like an impatient God would have nipped that in the bud like way, way earlier. And it wouldn't have been the compassionate, uh, graceful thing that we see in the Bible. Revelation also seems to hint that there are things that the church needs to be brought through, just kind of stages that we need to come through uh, before Christ's return. And Jesus himself is recorded in two Gospels. This is where I get kind of biblically nerdy. Uh, this is really rare. You don't see a lot of things that are, are in all of the Gospels or in multiple Gospels that look very, very, very similar. And these two verses read almost exactly alike. Uh, Matthew twenty four thirty six and Mark thirteen twenty four read, Now concerning that day and hour, no one knows, neither the angels in heaven nor the Son, except the Father only. So Jesus himself is taking a minute, and two gospel recorders thought it was important enough to include that only the Father knows the timing on this, not even Jesus did. So all that really helps me on a rational basis uh, to explain this question and to, and to have peace with it. But man, I love that this questioner asked, how can we feel this? Because that's a whole other question in, in and of itself. And I can't really answer that, you know, based on just facts or scripture or anything like that. I can only share how I feel about it. And I feel that it's this important time of God building his people through his church and vice versa, the church being built through his people. Uh, I don't understand necessarily the narrative that God is building to the second coming of Christ. But I'm sure that the vast majority of the Israelites didn't really understand what was going on when they were slaving away in, in Egypt and stuff. So um, I just kind of take comfort in those things. But I also feel very excited that I serve a God that takes his time and carefully places every person and every event that he needs to place to perfectly bring the second coming of his son. And that really, um, 
is, is where I bring a lot of comfort into this question. All right, next question. How do we deal with others' view of us, Christians, while we know that we are wrong sometimes? How do we recover these moments? I think you have to first just start out with acknowledging that all Christians are, are just humans too. We're just trying to follow Christ through this life. And we need to tell people that more often. We're, we are separated because Christ has redeemed us, but we're not different in that sense. It's not like I accepted Jesus and now I make no wrong decisions. Uh, everything that I say is completely on point and truthful and, and exactly right in that moment. Like, that just doesn't happen. Uh, so, so we need to acknowledge that first. Peter, the guy who we were talking about a minute ago, he's often called the rock that the church was built on. He lies three times about even knowing Jesus in the critical moments building the first church. If he can overcome that and own it and it become part of his ministry, I don't really know of anything that we can do that can't be. But I do want to say that I love this question and that I think this is the heart of this series. I really believe that this question encapsulates what we're trying to learn in this. Uh, I was recently listening to an interview with a guy named Scott Sauls. He's an author and pastor down in Tennessee. And he was stressing just how uh, we need to bring the gospel in equal parts of truth and love. And I think that that's super critical to the church today. We look through history and we've seen it done wrong. We know what it shouldn't look like. I mean, you look back at the Inquisition, and you're like, I guess that's kind of truth without love, that, but that, there's no love in that. And then you, you get to more modern times, and you see just, you see compassion, but lacking much in, in a structural truth. They're not bringing out of truth this love, and they need to, to balance really well, and we're struggling with where to find that tension. Uh, I really like how John uh, describes Jesus. In, in John 1, 14, he says, the word became flesh and took up residence among us. We observed his glory, the glory of the one and only Son, sent from the Father, full of grace and truth. He was full of truth and love. And if we're going to model him, we also need to be full of, of grace and truth. Let's start with truth. Uh, first, like a couple weeks ago, Josh talked about we need to admit when we're wrong. We need to be known as people who own our mistakes. Uh, if we're unsure of a topic, we need to be honest about that. We need to be truthful about the limits of our own understanding and knowledge. If, uh, if you're in a, an argument about something and you see that, that both points have good you know, structural value and can be, uh, can be right either way, and you're, you're somewhere in the middle, you need to, to be able to admit that. We also need to be able to admit when we have doubts. If you really are, are reading a hard passage and someone's questioning you on it and, and you don't know and you're like, man, I, I don't know what that means about God, you need to be honest about that. We as Christians really need to bring that kind of honesty. That does not mean, though, that we're relativistic. We do not move our truth with culture or society. We do have a core truth that we believe in and we must be consistent in. 
so for me, uh, prioritizing these has been critical to, to my journey in all of this. I had to learn um, what was most important to me and the things that kind of are lesser importance. And it helps me as far as like, how do I pray? How do I study? How do I engage people in these conversations? And so I break things into three very basic camps, and this helps me immensely. So first, I'm going to give you your uh, seminary word of the day. Uh, The first one is salvific. This is an issue critical to salvation. For me, this is the life, is just faith in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Like, full stop. That is the salvific issue. Uh, Belief in Jesus is salvation. Uh, This is my most central truth and the thing that I'm most sure of. So all the other ones kind of have to come out from there. Next is primary issues. These are important to our understanding of God. These are going to be big items for the church uh, and our relationship to the world. These are things like, how are we going to address abortion? How are we going to um, talk about civil rights and stand up for things? How are we going to treat the poor? Uh, These are our identity to the world. These are important for us to get right because this is how the world is going to see us. And it's also equally important to follow up on them. If these are things that we get right in truth, but we're not living out, it's going to be hugely damaging to us because this is how we will be identified. The last one is secondary issues. These are interesting and maybe open-ended topics not covered by the above. These aren't necessarily unimportant things. These are things that are often biblical issues. And I'm not telling you not to dive into them and learn what you can and have an opinion on it. What I am saying is these are things that can divide the church that shouldn't. These are things that we as Christians need to kind of come to an understanding and be able to agree to disagree on. Uh, we, we shouldn't be able to agree to disagree that, uh, that we need to to help the poor. That, that's something Jesus calls us to. Uh, we can agree to disagree on some of the how things are done at church. Uh, I had a friend that was uh, convicted. He really believed that the only way to properly do uh, communion was to have real wine. And we had to have a conversation, and it was a tougher conversation than I thought it was going to be, on why, to me, this is a secondary issue. That this is not, uh, this doesn't have a bearing on if you're saved or not. We can talk about these things, and let's try to get them right, but let's not divide because of it. It's been incredibly helpful for me to frame these issues, though, uh, because I understand what's most important to me. It lets me talk in a world where questions can be overwhelming. Like, we live in a society now where it's okay to question, and I'm glad the churches get in there too, but, uh, you know, as, as questions just come at you, it's good to have a framework, and I can weed through, you're asking this question, but I really think you mean this, and it, and it lets me be honest and know the things that are most important to me and, and talk about those things, but it also lets me be open where I have doubts and struggles. I get to say, you know, I, I really don't know as much as I should about that, or, man, there's two views on this, and I, I kind of don't know which one the Bible really teaches. So it gives you a vulnerability as well. Um, but as we talk about that tension, the other half of that balancing act is love. And if we aren't loving well, our truth will fall on deaf ears. 
Um, when we talk about this kind of love, I'm specifically talking about like self-sacrificing love that you build with your, f- your friends, family, and neighbors. The things where you go out of your way and do stuff you don't want to do to build a relationship. And we all do that, but, but as we do it intentionally, we need to do it because we're building love with those people. Uh, and it's, it's interesting that we know this intuitively because we believe that we were built, we're the image bearers of God, and we were created so that God could pour his love into us. And that should tell us that that is the natural conduit of things, that as we love people, of course they receive that, uh, and, and our truth will be received along with it. Uh, one of the cool, I'm a bit of a history nerd, and I love the example of uh, in, the, in, three, in about 300 AD, you have this emperor named Julian of the Roman Empire who hates Christians. He wants to exterminate Christians from the empire and, and is going about it. He's, at, he's martyring people left and right, and he's not a very cool guy. Uh, but we have this letter that has survived 1,700 years to the present in which he's talking to his buddy Archaeus about just how frustrating the Christians are because he can't seem to wipe them out and is kind of losing this battle. And he talks about several things uh, about how they're loving the Roman people. The Christians are loving the Roman people better than the Romans are. That every time he kills one, it seems like 10 new Christians pop up out of nowhere. And the, the example that was really telling to me, and I thought this was really cool, is that the Christians were taking care of people who couldn't afford to bury their dead in a Roman funeral. Funeral, So they're taking this really intimate moment. I mean, for one, that, that's as close as you can get to somebody in vulnerability. I mean, that's a, that's a bad moment when a loved one has passed away. Here you are too poor to actually do anything about it. You can't properly bury this person. And these Christians were putting aside their theological beliefs for a minute. They were loving that person despite uh, having different religious views, but they were living in concert with them, and it paid dividends. This guy couldn't wipe out Christianity uh, when, when all the tools were at his disposal to do so. Uh, this is also the church that we see beginning in Acts 2, uh, 46 and 47. It reads, Every day they devoted themselves to meeting together in the temple complex and broke bread from house to house. They ate their food with a joyful and humble attitude, praising God and having favor with all the people. They fed people and they worshiped together. They were humble and all the people had favor for them. We're so quick in our society to overlook the power of humility today. I feel like if I had to wrap up the entire series of Polarized into one thing, it would be humbleness, just living a, hum, uh, a humble life. And everything from being able to admit that we're wrong, uh, desiring God's justice in our lives, not placing yourself above others, but just the fact that we're called to share a truth that the core of which is admitting our own um, unworthiness. It's all about humility. And it's really, it's counterintuitive. We think that humbleness equals defeat, that you're just going to get run over. But it's really cool to me that we have these historical examples about how God's truth through this worked and that love won, uh, or that, I'm sorry, truth won through love. Uh, So kind of wrapping that question up, since we know that we'll be wrong sometimes, the best way to face the world is to be humble and admit when we're wrong. 
but also to be compassionate and generous. That's a combination that is really hard to dislike, and, and I think we'll win through it. The next question, what advice do you give those who are dating someone with polarized beliefs? For example, they're both Christians, but one thinks homosexuality is sin and the other doesn't. Let me back up the question real quick. I kind of feel like somebody just wants me to answer an argument, but I don't. That's, but anyways, uh, let me broaden it for just a second before kind of focusing back in. Um, I would want to ask, how do we maintain relationships with deep disagreement. I think that we got to go back to the beginning of the series to start in this conversation when Brian was teaching about remembering that that person has a reason they believe what they believe. And, and when you look at it, rarely are those beliefs just purely intellectual. It's not like they're just research-based reasons that X, Y, and Z. Most of the time, those reasons are emotional reasons. They, they were mistreated by someone as a kid that taught them this, and so now they hate that teaching. Uh, or the flip side is, is they were taught well by someone who poured into them and loved them, and now that's what they believe. Uh, and that's the way most of us are, are built. Uh, and, and I think we've got to look at that to, to remember that that person has a reason behind what they believe. The next is I would advise that couple to really ask one another, where that, that disagreement, where that issue is priority-wise to each of them. If it's a salvation issue to one and a secondary issue to another, that's its own problem. I think you need to really get into why that, there's a difference there. But through just beginning in those general kind of questions, it gives you the start enough point to respectfully dive into the issue together, something that you can kind of unearth together. I think critical to that too is also you need to pray together that you're both searching for an answer in it from God not just you know praying that the other person would come to your point of view that's probably not a good idea so uh, lastly I know I've mentioned life groups several times but find a community find a group of people uh, somewhere that you can dive into this question and, and, and reason through and talk through and see what other people's lives have been affected by and that'll just add new insight, and I think it'll also add compassion for one another as you see that people across the board are divided on that issue. But I think it's super important that we keep in mind that through all of this, our top priority should be unity in Christ. Romans twelve sixteen advises us, be in agreement with one another. Do not be proud. Instead, associate with the humble. Do not be wise in your own estimation. Who has been wise in their own estimation in an argument? Like, I for sure have thought that I was the smartest person arguing something I don't know how many times. And you know, Paul in Romans is telling us that that's not how we should be. Uh, I feel like this verse should be our prayer and our posture as we dive into messy questions with people. Um, and if... I kind of thought about the way that that question was asked as far as it being a dating relationship question, and I was like, man, my daughter's going to start asking me stuff like this one of these days as she grows up, and like, what would my advice be in that situation? And as I read this verse, I really hope that my advice to her will be that the disagreement is not as important as the posture and attitude in which you approach it. Uh, with, with salvation aside, if 
that that is a critical issue that I can't agree to disagree on. But uh, outside of that, like you need to just be praying together and approaching it humbly that both of you are trying to look for God's answer in this. Uh, so that would be what I would advise someone to, to do is look at the other person honestly. Are, are you both trying to be humble and find an answer? Or is one of you more concerned with being right than being humble? Um, and if one party isn't willing to, to be humble and search for an answer together, if it's a dating relationship, I think you, you, you do have to look hard at is, is this something that should uh, continue down that path? Uh, I, I would argue that that attitude portion is more important than the initial disagreement that you're having. Because if you can both put aside your want to be right and really dive in searching for God in that, in that question, you're, you're starting on a good place. That's a good place to begin. So, man, it's gone by way too fast. So, in closing, man, I really appreciate you guys sending in questions. I really appreciate the questioning heart. Uh, but we do have to acknowledge that at the end of the day, we still will have doubts. It's called faith, not facts, for that reason. There's, there's just something that we'll always struggle with and we'll always be struggling with. And I honestly want to tell you that if that's you, you're on the right path. Just keep struggling along. Uh, but the book of Jude, Jude tells us this really great little sentence. He says, be merciful to those who doubt. So as, as we get frustrated with people who question us on, in, in a polarized society that we live in, uh, let's, let's remember that and be merciful and compassionate to those people. Have love for them instead of being frustrated that they can't just see what you're trying to put in front of them. But I also want to say, if you're the one that's doubting, like if, if you're a Christian and you're just doubting through these things, have grace on yourself. Have mercy for yourself in that. Uh, I think you're on the right path. I think you're going the right direction. So just keep going, guys. Uh, thanks so much for giving me your ears and a little bit of time. Uh, and I just want to pray over you before we go into worship. Jesus, thank you so, so much uh, just for being the God that uh, both humbles and redeems us. I thank you uh, for people with a questioning heart, God. I just ask that you would um, help them find answers, that you would work through your church and, and your word and just continue to pursue that person with your truth. Uh, God, I thank you for the times that you've shown us the, the truth of it. I ask that you would help us to remember when we've found your truths and how amazing that can be, and that we would just set those touchstones up that uh, we would look back to you and know that you're faithful in that. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thanks, guys.